You're listening to Null and Void with Tony Grundy and Andy Callahan, a For the Now media production. Hello and welcome to episode 28 of the Null and Void Sports Podcast. Tonight, as ever, we've got two great guests and lots of inputs from the fabulous world of sport. My name is Tony Grundy. And mine's Andy Callahan. So, Grundy, I leave you in charge for one week. One week you're in charge, left unsupervised and on your own. And the sporting world has gone absolutely bonkers. In your week unsupervised, we've had <laughs> managerial sackings, captains resigning, parliamentary inquiries, world champions toppled. What were you doing? Well, I just thought it was time we just beef things up and, and you know, it would make it busy for when you came back and you're sunning yourself on a beach in Gran Canaria. But what I want to know from you is how did you end up upsetting the organisers uh, organizers of the Gran Canaria uh, um, marathon? How did you manage to do that? I'm going to blame the French rugby team for this one. It's a bit of a tenuous what? link. So France... Yeah on Saturday evening, overturned New Zealand unexpectedly in the rugby. I may have had one or two of the free beers in the hotel whilst following the updates and celebrating that result. So Sunday morning, I was a little bit later out of bed, now out for my 5K jog stroke waddle um, than normal. And I'd also, because I was running a bit later, I'd not had my coffee. So I wasn't quite... uh, up and fresh with the daisy, shall we say. So I'm out for a, a plod, 5K, you know, 30 minutes, nice, steady. And I suddenly start noticing on either side of the road, all these people cheering and clapping and shouting, vamos, vamos, vamos. And I thought, are they taking the mickey? And, you know, <laughs> sort of the pieces of the jigsaw were kind of there, but not quite forming a picture. Because I then looked and there was a dotted blue line on the road. I thought, hang on a minute. And I could see then a water station up ahead. I thought, hang on, there's some race going on here. And they're, vamos, vamos, cheering away. The next thing you know, (laughs) these absolute (laughs) racing snakes come flying past. And the guy on the back of that group was holding the three-hour pacemaker flag. Three hours for a marathon. Now, even in my best days when I've been training for a marathon, which at the moment I certainly haven't been, and in the cool weather, rather than the 25 degrees it was, I could never hope to complete a three-hour marathon. So at that point, I thought, oh, I need to get off the road here. This is a proper serious event. And which I skulked off and shamefacedly made my way back to the hotel, staying off the main road. So, uh, yeah, unexpectedly and accidentally took part in at least a couple of Ks of the uh Gran Canaria full marathon on Sunday morning. Well, I think that's a good story, <clears throat> but I've actually got a competing marathon story to tell you. I was in Vienna uh, attending a big conference there with Forever Business, and uh, um, at the hotel, which is in the centre of Vienna, uh, I went for an early morning run because I'd, I'd spotted there was a big park nearby. I knew that the Vienna Marathon was on the next day. Unlike you, I knew it was on. And so I thought, right, well, I'll go in the big park. I'll do a loop or two of that and I'll come back again. Probably doing a similar distance to yourself. This was um, probably 2013, something like that. Anyway, 
I came out of the park and I obviously the crowds were gathering. I thought, yeah, fair enough. And I set off back to the hotel, which it turned out was the last mile and a half of the marathon course. And these people, exactly like you, they're all cheering me. And of course, I realized what was going on. They thought I was actually leading this race because the others, nobody went past me. And I, I, I was waving to them and carrying on doing the performance bit. And when I came to my hotel, which turned out to be only about half a mile from the finish, uh, I stopped and all these people were saying, no, keep going, keep going, keep going. <laughs> you're going to win. You're going to win. <laughs> you win. Don't stop now. So <laughs> it's a competing marathon story, but perfectly true. And uh, I always say I did partially compete the Vienna Marathon. Yeah. But uh, so, yeah, you, you, you're back. And yes, all those stories. I mean, clearly from my point of view, Ollie's sacking, that was a big thing. Mm -hmm. uh, it's made every every paper, every radio station going. Uh, and the one thing I would say about that, that it was inevitable, uh, you know, because of what was happening, it really wasn't working. Great guy that he is, it was inevitable. What saddened me a little bit, because they did play quite well in Europe last night when I watched it, they were very well organised, very disciplined, and did what they should have been doing for months. But I was hoping above hope that no footballing cretin would actually say we did it for ollie we did this one for ollie guess who said it michael carrick i think sometimes footballers are particularly stupid and when they say things like that that makes me really angry and the reason i'm angry is if you're a supporter you've been through weeks and months of the team not playing anything like they should that's the same coaching staff that's been with ollie throughout why would they suddenly put in a performance? Because he's gone. Why didn't they do it while he was still there? While he was still there. That makes me so angry. And there it was in black and white, Michael Carrick saying how wonderful, you know, and it was a gift to uh, Ollie. Thank you very much. So, you know, uh, we've actually got Billy Carr later, uh, our footballing correspondent. We'll talk more about football then. Mm -hmm. But rugby, rugby, Andy, England, Wales, France, great wins huh? yeah yeah i mean it was a it was a clean sweep for the northern hemisphere this weekend so england beat south africa in a very close game um i think england played the more rugby but just again discipline was shocking i think 18 penalties world class is always if you can keep it down to single figures in penalties so 18 was sky high but a great win young marcus smith kicking the uh the, the penalty goal at the end that won it for us. Wales with a last grasp win over Australia, which means Australia go home from a Northern Hemisphere tour without a test win for the first time since, I think, 1974, 1975. So, you know, that was phenomenal. France beating New Zealand was just a real turn up for the books, especially yeah. after Ireland beat them the other week. Normally, if it, New Zealand lose one game in the series or their tour, you worry for the other teams who are going to be playing them. <laughs> So they, they, France did brilliantly. And it was, it was what France do. So harem, scarem, rugby and, and, a, and a great game. Ireland beat Argentina, which was more expected, but did it in a very convincing way. And I guess we can say that Scotland continued the win for the Northern Hemisphere teams, but they were playing another Northern Hemisphere team in Japan. But on top of yeah. that, the women's team, the England Red Roses, equaled 
the winning record for test teams. So the England men and New Zealand held that record at 18 apiece. England's women have now joined them with 18 games unbeaten with their 89-0 win against the USA. USA, who are ranked maybe fourth, fifth in the world. So they're certainly not minnows or tiddlers. They have won the World Cup in recent years. And England, absolutely, that's four out of four for England. 50-odd points, sorry, 40-odd points was their lowest score or total across those four games. They've been absolutely phenomenal. So, yeah, equal to the record. If they win their first game in the Six Nations, they're then the best test side with an unbeaten run. Brilliant. I, I, my next note, uh, Andy, I got Kevin Sinfield down for Rob Burrows. Wow. 101 miles in 24 hours. 7K per hour is what they were doing, wasn't that? You just, when you hear that coverage, whether you, you're listening on the radio or, or watching on TV, in terms of a demonstration of true friendship, Absolutely phenomenal. They both played at Leeds Rhinos together, as we know, when Brian McDermott was manager there. Mm. And, uh, you know, that's that's such a, a, a great thing. And they've raised eight, over 800,000 this time. It was 2.7 million last time. 800,000 for this particular run for MND. And I just think that's a... Well, it just shows the character of that man, Kevin Sinfield. But equally, you know, for Rob Burroughs, mm. that must be fantastic. And, and so humble with it. I mean, every interview that I've seen him do, it's not about him. It's about, you know, Kevin's putting the spotlight back onto the charity, back onto the work of other people. So, you know, what a, what, what an amazing guy. And, you know, to do seven marathons in seven days last year, all of them under yeah. four hours, and then this one, 101 miles at 7Ks every 60 minutes, they started another 7K, 7K. So that, you know, in that time, that was they had to get any rest, patch themselves up, any food, anything like that, and then start the next 7K. I mean, just phenomenal. The man is an absolute legend. You know, um, I, I, I was lucky enough to watch him play regularly at standoff for the Rhinos as a Rhinos fan. And you just look at what he's done since and his work for the MND charity and really bring it into the spotlight with Rob Burrow is fantastic. Yeah. Uh, what also is fantastic is Tim Payne, the Aussie, Aussie captain, getting his comeuppance. Go on, you, 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 you say your bit on him. A wee bit of schadenfreude here on my part. That, you know, <laughs> way back in the 1st of October, when there was talk of would England actually go to the uh, to Australia for the Ashes because of COVID, because of bubbles, etc. Tim Payne sat there and his comment was, well, mate, the uh, Ashes are going ahead on the 8th of December, whether Joe Root's here or not. Well, fast forward to uh, the 23rd of November, Tim Payne stripped of the captaincy by Cricket Australia. And I think everyone's now sat there saying, well, mate, the uh, Ashes are going ahead on the 8th of December, whether Tim Payne's there or not. Yeah, he, he's just actually had a uh, an outing for the Tasmania second eleven and was out for one. So you know, sometimes things come back and bite your bum, as they say. And nobody can be more more happy that it's him that's got it. Anyway, cricket racism. We know there's a possibility of an independent disciplinary body being uh, structured. 
what's your suggestion that you should be named? Well, if if you've got regulators for um, you know radio and television off com, you've got water off what energy companies off gen cricket. It's got to be off stump. <laughs> yeah, I think that's that's a that's a fair a fair idea. And what if yeah. it was football? Offside. Um, <laughs> so, but I mean, yeah, it, it's a real mess that cricket's got itself into. Um, I think the game root and branch at the professional level needs to really look at itself. I think what professional sports people sometimes forget, and whilst there's no place for racism at any level of the game whatsoever. A lot of people forget that, you know, there is that changing room banter that people will get. And I'm not saying that to condone racism. That's, it should still not be racist. But you, you sometimes make jokes in a changing room that can be quite brutal, quite near the knuckle. And that's a sort of changing room culture. But the minute you start getting paid for it, sports people need to remember that it then becomes a workplace. And all of the rules, the regulations that would cover any workplace in terms of how you treat people, how you speak to people come into play. And I think a lot of people forget that in the sporting arena and, you know, therefore they need to look, but now with, you know, Essex, the allegations being made, Yorkshire, more and more things are coming out in that inquiry. I think cricket needs to have a long, long, hard look at itself in the culture of the sport and say, how do we actually start to re-engage with people right across the demographic of people who enjoy and play the sport. And I think that's something that needs only, to be done. And, and we're only partway through the journey and it's going to be horrible. I mean, Michael Vaughan today, he's not going to be doing the Ashes coverage. So it, it ripples and affects so many other people as well. Mm. Whether he's right, whether he's wrong, Michael Vaughan, the reality is the BBC has taken that view. So it affects all sorts of other people. Moving on to... Uh, F1 and, and Hamilton's win. That was a great win, wasn't it? It was a fantastic win. Yeah, really good to see um, that they're keeping the race or the championship race for the title, no pun intended, open until the final two races of the season. So we've got um, Saudi Arabia this weekend coming up and then Abu Dhabi the following weekend is the season finale. So it looks as though it could be keeping things exciting in both the Constructors' Championship and the Drivers' Championship, right up to the final weekend. Yeah, good stuff. Okay, contacts this week. I had one, Barry Wood, former uh, interviewee on on the station, a couple of times, actually, Barry, and he's a big Derby supporter, as we know. He was commenting, though, on Sir John Medeski's interview, and he said, I really enjoyed it, and it was really insightful. He said, I've never heard that side of Sir John Medeski and his childhood and the difficulties he actually went through. And and ultimately, sometimes people go off the rails at a time like that. He uh, he came up the right side of it and did extremely, extremely well. And he was so successful. But he said he really enjoyed listening to them. And a lot of people have commented on that interview. And I know from a personal point of view, having worked with uh, Sir John, not everybody gets to hear that kind of stuff. So I think Nolan Void was very privileged. It made it a great interview. Yeah, it was it, it was great to speak to him and sort of hear, hear his background. And also, I think, you know, the fact that people are sort of saying the, these are sort of stories that we want to hear. Yeah. OK, uh, maybe some people won't want to hear this, but get a grip. 
this is world rugby I'm addressing. I think you might have something to add to this. But Erasmus, South African coach, we talked about him when he was being so critical and was allowed to get away with, on the face of it, mm. his 60-minute rant on video about the referee, one specific referee at that time, almost to a very cruel level. But World Rugby took four months and they produced an 80-page document with finally announcing what his suspension will be. Now, you can argue about, you know, should he... If it had been a player, he'd have actually been sanctioned within a week, wouldn't he? Yeah. yeah? So why does an organisation as big as World Rugby take that long to come to a conclusion like that? I, 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 you can argue whether he should have been in games suspended or, or, or actually time. Well, it was time they suspended him, but it will cover 10 games. That's quite a big suspension. So you can argue that either way. And I'm not particularly taking sides because is it right to criticise referees in the way he did? No, it is not. But on the other hand, if you've got to be uh, balanced about it, he's entitled to his opinion. And some people agreed with a lot of the things he was saying. I'm just talking about world rugby here. And in that same issue, that same pronouncement about him, they also lumped together, if you can do such a thing, just talking uh, about people's overall fitness and health as an issue and head injuries at the same time. Now, how on earth can you, something as serious as head injuries, can you put them in the same bag at the same time? World Rugby, message from us, null and void, get a grip. Absolutely. Um, just need to get a grip on it. I think, you know, the the suspension is uh, balanced, but to take four months to get to that point, absolutely ridiculous. And it just, it doesn't paint the governing body who we've mentioned a number of times on Get a Grip, doesn't paint them in a good light. So yet again, as you say, World Rugby need to just get a grip, get to grips with both the discipline side and actually, if they're going to talk about and they're serious about tackling head injuries, which I think they are, but they they need to really put that front and centre, not as part of a separate disciplinary hearing. Yeah, quite agree. OK, hopefully that message gets home. It has done in the past. Now, why don't we raise the tone? Why don't we go to our first guest? I'll tell you what, I'm absolutely delighted to introduce you to somebody I've known well, since I was 15 years old, and as people know my age, that's quite a long time. Someone who's become a, a nationally known figure on both TV and radio. Somebody who is a Fulham FC supporter of many, many years. That person is David Hamilton, or Diddy David, as some people would know him. David, welcome to Null and Void. How are you doing, mate? Yes, welcome, boys. And I use the word boys loosely. <laughs> yeah it's a long time since either of us qualified at that age group i think <laughs> i don't think we'll avoid we'll this we'll audio ages <laughs> yeah yeah keep away from that one shall we don't yeah now i didn't realize you were actually born in my home city of manchester until i read some notes yeah yes i was born in manchester at a very early age uh i was born at wally range <laughs> uh, the rumors yeah, Wally Range. The rumours were that uh, it was just called the Range, but they added the Wally when I arrived. 
Excellent. And I do know Wally Rain. So, yeah. Um, but that that was some time ago. When, so soon after that, did you move to London? Is that Was that a sequence of events? Well, I was born in 1938, just before the war. And uh, about a year later, I was evacuated to my grandfather's farm in Sussex, which funnily enough is where I am uh, talking to you from today. But uh, that's another story. And uh, so I came down here with my mother. My father joined the army and uh, went to Italy, where he was shot and quite badly injured. Um, but uh, then after the war, uh, we moved up to London. My parents sadly split up and uh, my father lived in Wimbledon and my mother lived in Fulham. Uh, hence the, uh, you know, the fact that I became a Fulham supporter. I was about to yeah. ask, is that where the uh, the interest we uh, we were joking that normally it's uh, the other way that, you know, normally people from London become Manchester United supporters. So you've done it the other way. You've started out in Manchester and become a, uh, a supporter of a London club. Yeah, well, I didn't stay in Manchester at that time long enough. Um, mm. But uh, my mother lived very close to uh, Putney Bridge Station. And anybody who's been to Fulham will know that uh, it was a walk, lovely walk through Bishop's Park along the river. And there I was in the local ground. Um, I wasn't far either from Chelsea. And uh, my father was a Chelsea supporter. But I didn't like Chelsea very much because this is really going back in time. But they had a greyhound track and at one time as well a speedway track round the outside so as a little boy you were a long way away from the action mm. whereas mm. at fulham you could stand right behind the goal and almost touch the players so uh, it was much better for a for a wee boy tony Excellent. you mentioned that didn't you having even more recently watched uh manchester united play there you said you were much closer to the action yeah, absolutely right. And, and and one of the things I was actually saying to Andy is one day, many years later, when you were doing the emceeing job at Fulham, which I know you did for 18 years, but um, that you invited me down to join you pitch side on the night that United were playing there. And obviously for me, that was because I was so close to the players. But as an MC, you just get used to that stuff, don't you? I did. Um, I had a, a strange progress uh, to that because back in the 70s, uh, I was a director at Fulham along with Alan Price, you know, Alan Price of the Animals. Uh, we were like yeah. kind of showbiz uh, directors of Fulham. And it was a very exciting time because George Best was there, Rodney Marsh. There mm. was the famous match where they tackled each other. Do you remember that? They <laughs> They played against uh, Hereford in the, in the su September sunshine and they were both so keen to get the ball that they tackled each other, although they were on the same team. It was a great bit of showboating. And Fulham weren't going to win anything, but we had big crowds because then Bobby Moore came along as well. So I think at that particular time, they, they realised that they weren't going to win anything, but let's have a bit of showbiz. And um, so that was that was a great time. And then later on, when Mohamed Al-Fayed became the chairman, um, I was asked if I would like to be the match day MC, and it was a job that sort of grew because it started off with doing the halftime entertainment. Then I was doing all the announcing, you know, during the match, announcing the scorers and the subs and everything like that. And then afterwards, I was hosting one of the lounges with George Cohen, who, of course, was part of the England team that won the World Cup mm. in 
1966. What he didn't know about football wasn't worth knowing. So it was great, you know, being alongside him and so much rubbed off. Um, during my 18 years at Fulham, we had a wonderful time. We had three promotions. We had a European final in Hamburg and we had our longest ever run in the top division. So Mohamed Al-Fayed, whatever anybody thought about him, gave us enormous success. And for me uh, to be part of that time, and I got to know him very well because I used to introduce him before the match. He would come out and he'd wave his scarf and he'd do a sort of lap of honor around the pitch. I can't think of any other chairman who ever did that. And then he would always come over to me and we'd have a chat. And uh, one day um, I was asked to introduce Michael Jackson. And so he said um, at halftime, um, be ready to, when we give you a cue, be ready to introduce Michael Jackson. Well, I knew that Michael Jackson that day had been opening the Harrods sale for Mohammed Al-Fayed. And Mohammed Al-Fayed said to him, you come see my football club, and he said, my soccer. He said, oh, I've never been to a soccer match. He said, well, you come and see it. So I knew that uh, it was going to happen. Anyway, I got the cue. I said, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome the one, the only Michael Jackson. And he came out to what I can only describe as polite applause like this, because they thought it was a lookalike. Nobody, oh, right. nobody <laughs> believed. We'd never had a star like Michael Jackson. Hugh Grant was the biggest star we'd ever had then. <laughs> And so uh, then he got about halfway around the pitch. He was under a black and white Fulham umbrella, although it was a boiling hot, sunny day. Um, and he looked about six stone dripping wet, you know. And, he got, <laughs> and by the time he got to the Johnny Haynes stand, they suddenly realised, crikey, it is Michael Jackson. It is. <laughs> now they're on their feet. <laughs> anyway, the, the next big star we have was Tony Curtis. And when I said, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome the one and only Tony Curtis, this time they believed it. <laughs> so, you know, I mean, you would, you, as a result of doing that, David, you would, you would anyway in your work and radio and TV and so on, meet all sorts of stars. So that's not going to phase you. But who was your favourite amongst those people? Who was the most entertaining, funniest? Uh, who would you say? Well, the people that I work with. You talk and, about... well, particularly at Fulham when they, oh, at Fulham. You know, they yeah, yeah. Well, uh, Michael Jackson and uh, uh, Tony Curtis obviously were the bigger, biggest stars, but um, we would have lots of uh, stars who would come along there, uh, maybe very often supporting the the other club. You know, we had uh, John Stapleton, yes. who you'll know very well. Yeah, indeed. Big Man City supporter. Uh, but yeah. where I was, I must tell you this, where I was, I was in the fourth official's dugout. So I was in there very often with somebody from Sky, and what was great was we could hear all the industrial language that was going on, you know, on the pitch. Yeah. And yeah. Um, yeah, and uh there were so many funny things that happened. There were fights that were gonna go on between, you know, rival managers and and uh, fit like uh, <laughs> Klopp the other day, you know. Yeah. yeah. All, all this stuff was going on. And uh, and you would hear some of the things that were said. And uh, you'd think uh, so. It became one of my one of my favourite uh, managers was Stuart Pearce, and um, can't, I can't remember who he was managing at the time. Did, did he, he City or Forest? They I were two he, big ones. He was. I after. think yes. I think it was Man City, and uh, he gave one of his players a real bollocking, and <laughs> I I looked at him and he looked at me and he walked over to me and he said, "I've tried being nice, but it doesn't work." <laughs> 
<laughs> I like Pierce. I, I always thought he was he was a hell of a hell of a player. I mean, absolutely, you know, fearless mm. the way he played. But you wouldn't get want to get the wrong side of him, would you? No, no, you, you certainly wouldn't. And I made sure that I, I didn't get the wrong side of yeah. anybody. But what was lovely was very often because of my uh, profile, if you like, from radio and TV, which you mentioned earlier, very often people would come over and, and chat to me. And I remember one uh, game and Brian Kidd, who's probably somebody you admire as much as I yeah. do. Uh, he just came over and sat with, this is in the kickabout before the match, and he sat with me for about 20 minutes in the dugout, just having a chat about, how are you doing? And how's everything going? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, nice, nice, nice lad. Mm. Go, going back to, to, I mean, Fulham obviously took you forward in terms of your, your years there, but just going back to the broadcast career, and that's starting at ABC and continuity and so on. But you're a script writer to begin with, weren't you? But when the big break, as I saw it anyway, was when you were with Ken Dodd. Is that right? Was that the break? Well, through? no, actually, uh, actually earlier than that, because <clears throat> as you say, I was a script writer at ATV and uh, everything was going really well. I got called up for national service in the RAF. And I thought, oh, God, you know, it's going to be two years. I was I was very upset about it because my career was just taking off. Anyway, yeah. I, I luckily I got posted to Germany and um, I went to a station called RAF Putzweilerhof, which was very close to Cologne, which was the home of the British Forces Network radio station. Right. So you're, you're like this, Tony. I, I went uh, about the second day there. I went to see the station director and I said, look, I'm a scriptwriter. <laughs> Uh, can you use me at your station? So he said, well, actually, he said, we don't use writers. But as it happens, we do need somebody to read the football results. Yes. <laughs> so that was, that was the first thing. Uh, and, of course, I knew that it was all about inter intonation, you know, like Chelsea 1, Fulham 2. <laughs> there's a spe there's something, I think it's like the, the shipping forecast. There's something really reassuring. When you hear the football results being read like that on the radio, you know, there's that yeah. and the shipping forecast. They're two very, very particular British institutions, I think. Well, James Alexander Gordon made a, a name for himself as a reader of uh, football results, probably more than anybody else I can think of. But I did this for a while. And then one day I said to the boss there, I said, all this music that you play, Bing Crosby and Peggy Lee, I said, it's, try it's fine for the officers but the troops want rock and roll. So I don't think he knew what I meant, but anyway, it's because it was such a new thing. He said, I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll give you a show on Sunday afternoon and we'll see how it goes. So on Sunday afternoon, I started playing the music of Little Richard, Jerry Lee Lewis, Elvis Presley, who was in Germany at the same time doing his national service with the US Army. Mm. I think he was in Frankfurt and I was in Cologne. The troops absolutely loved it because it was one of the first programs to play rock and roll. And uh, the boss of the station was so embarrassed about transmitting this heathen music that he followed it with a speech by the Padre. So the Padre came on and cleansed the sins of the troops for listening to this outrageous rock and roll. <laughs> it's almost like a, the film Good Morning Vietnam. Your character, the Robin Williams character, was based on what you were doing. 
absolutely. When, <laughs> when I saw that film, I thought uh, that was me because uh, he was in Vietnam, obviously, and uh, I was in Germany, where luckily there weren't any guns being fired. But and of course, I was there many years later. So when I watched that film, uh, which had great music in it, of course, I thought, uh, oh, that's my story. Yeah, that's what I did. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, you were football daft from early on. You were playing in your school team and so on. And so it was natural, I guess, when you got very well known that you were going to get into the Showbiz 11 team because that's, I think, how we met, you know, uh, via dad. Uh, uh, and I always used to take my boots along in the hope that I'd, I'd get a game. And I very often did. And, of course, I could, at 15, 16 or whatever I was, I could run faster. And I, I could play football. I was a reasonable footballer. And it's a great experience for me. But some of the characters you met, we both met in that team when it was in the Northwest and so on. Great occasions on big stadiums. You, you've played in some magnificent grounds on, well, I think you played against the 66 World Cup team, didn't you? With no, them. I, no, I played with them. Um, ah. it, was, it was Alan Mullery's testimonial at Fulham. And he yeah. had the uh, England World Cup squad from 66. This was about, probably about six or seven years later against an ex-Fulham 11 and he was two players short there were two players who couldn't make it and of course I knew Alan pretty well through Fulham because he was there at the time of you know Best and Marsh and and mm. more uh, as well and in the cup final of course in 1975 so I knew Mullers very well anyway he rang me up one day and he said look uh, we're short of a couple of players he said I'm going to ask Jimmy Tarbuck and you if you would like to play for the England World Cup <laughs> so I said no, I said, I think I'm doing something that night. <laughs> anyway, um, falling, falling over yourself. To get, yeah. yeah, we ran out. We ran out in the uh, in the red and white uh, strip. Wow. And uh, of course, I was very quiet. This is unlike me, as you can imagine. I was very quiet in the dressing room before the match. <laughs> I didn't have a lot, a lot to say. I just looked. <laughs> I just kind of looked. And, you know, it was Jack Charlton and Bobby Charlton and... Uh, uh, well, nearly all the team, you know, Gordon Banks. And uh, anyway, um, we ran out, and I've got somewhere a press cutting which said um, uh, Jack Charlton passed to David Hamilton, who crossed for uh, Bobby Charlton to rocket it into the back of the net. Fantastic. <laughs> well, that, that, I tell you, that is worth that is well worth keeping. That, I mean, so that's the lovely thing about that. All right, you're in broadcast, but you get those occasions as well to mix with these great guys. And I, I, I kind of rode side saddle with Dad on these occasions, cricket matches, football matches. And, you know, I remember one game at, they were playing at Hyde, and, and this was before I got into semi professional football, but Bobby Charlton was the referee. And uh, um, he was an absolute hero of mine. And I, I tended to be left-footed, but I modelled myself on hitting a ball like he used to. And I hit the shot from distance. He was referee. And it just shot over the bar. And he turned to me and he said, good shot, son. And I think, oh, that's it. I'm finished. I don't need anything else now, you know. Oh. Yeah, yeah. So, I'll, I'll walk off you, now. Thank you. I'll, I'll tell now. you a story yeah. about I'll tell you a story about Bobby Charlton. I played on a Radio 1 team at Old Trafford, which obviously was a thrill for us. And, uh, you know, the, the, none of us could play, really. But anyway, uh, we played against – it was a full house. And we played against uh, a Man U team 
that included Bobby Charlton. And it was, again, only a few years after he had retired. So I watched him play and I thought, why has he retired? Because he's still so good. And then I thought, it, 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 I kind of rumbled it. I thought, it's the pace of the game. It's the different pace yes. of the professional game and charity matches. Anyway, here's my story and you'll, you'll love this. Bobby Charlton takes a corner kick with his right foot. It's an in-swinger. And in it swinger, goes, yeah. yeah, in-swinger, and it goes over our goalkeeper's head right into the back of the net. So somebody <laughs> on our team says to Bobby Charlton, bit of a flute there, Bobby. So Bobby said, uh, oh, he said, you think it's a flute, do you? He said, well, you know. Anyway, second half, Bobby Charlton takes another corner kick, this time with his left foot, top of the Just net. The Goal direct, two corners direct. <laughs> this time, nobody said it was a fluke. No, he was a terrific player. He really was, and for oh. me at Manchester United, he was the hero of my my first real hero there. Followed later by by Best, uh, as you know, at that time the sort of the new Beatle, as it were, George Best. But I followed him particularly, and I I like. I mean, I don't think he was ever booked. Maybe once in all his career, but it, he, the fierceness with, with which he hit the ball. I used to spend hours working on free kicks because yeah. I just watched him. He was so graceful. And the other thing is that I, that I was taught from very early on is using your right foot. He was he was product, he was left footed, but he was very strong with his right foot. And I thought you have to go that way. And I, I kind of I was model myself on him, but a lovely guy as well. And you yes. think the power back then when those, the old footballs that were, oh. you know, the leather that they got wet and they suddenly, it was like, you know, sort of a kicking um, a medicine ball type thing. And, and still he could absolutely get that ball to yeah. rock it. I've got another yes. story for you about uh, a charity match, which you will like. Um, you will, of course, both of you remember the Bradford City fire disaster. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And uh, after that, we were the Showbiz 11, who I played for, uh, were asked to go up to Yorkshire to raise money for the dependents of people who perished in that fire. And so we got a very, very good team together of very good names. We couldn't play at Bradford City, obviously, because the stadium uh, yeah. had burnt down. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So we played at uh, Huddersfield uh, rugby ground at Fartown, Huddersfield, which wasn't too far away. And so we got up there and went up by coach. And uh, you you won't believe this, Tony, but we were playing against the ex-Leeds United eleven. So it was <laughs> Bobby Charlton, Johnny Giles, Peter Lorimer, Norman Bite Your Legs Hunter. It was unbelievable. So anyway, we were we thought, well, you know, they won't kick us. <laughs> <laughs> Won't kick us because we're we're showbiz. Anyway, that so, Leeds team would have kicked their grannies, David. <laughs> exactly. We were probably about the same age as their grannies. Anyway, um, Frank Worthington turned up and came into our dressing room. So somebody said, "Oh, Frank, uh, ex pros are in the other dressing room across the corridor." And Frank Worthington said, "No, no." He said, "I've always wanted to be in show business. I'm going to play for you." And nobody argued. <laughs> no, he wouldn't. He wouldn't. So we have oh. one good player. Yeah, <laughs> that's uh, that's that's brilliant. And and yeah, I mean, I, I know the Far Town ground well. I used to coach um, rugby up in Halifax many years after that. So yeah, I know the Far Town ground well. It's uh, mm. it's a, a heavy pitch that one to be uh, to be getting clogged about on. 
Well, it would be. I mean, it's a rugby pitch. It's going to be all, uh, yeah. I mean, they tried that at Fulham uh, for a while. They tried having uh, rugby uh, as well as football there and found it carves up the pitch for the footballers, unfortunately. But uh, yes, it was absolutely packed. In fact, people were turned away. And we did manage to raise quite a lot of money for uh, people who perished in that dreadful fire. So it was a fun day. That's a nice way of combining uh, pleasure, which is playing football, with doing a bit of good as well. With doing some good and supporting that community. Yeah, fantastic. One thing I was wondering about, David, I was I was reading through your background and I'm going to take you sort of right back. The Speedway, how did you get involved in being the compare, race day compare? At, was it both Wembley and then at, at Reading? How, how did that come yes, about? It was. Well, I was a big Speedway fan. When I was a little boy, I had an auntie Gertie who lived in Dollis Hill, and she used to take me and my cousin Ian to Wembley Speedway on uh, Thursday nights. And um, she used to get very, very excited. She was probably in her 70s. But uh, when the racing was... Um, really exciting she used to wet her knickers and um i was i was at boarding school and i used to ring her up and i'd say uh how is the speedway uh auntie on thursday she'd say oh it's fantastic and i'd say did did the lions win she'd say yes did tommy price get a maximum yes did you wet your knickers auntie three times <laughs> so i knew that was the gauge of i how i knew it was great anyway seen dissolves and in 1970 ed stewart and i who were both at radio one were asked to do the announcing when speedway reopened at wembley stadium mm. so we did the season which we both thoroughly enjoyed and at the end of the season the promoter said what we'll do is we'll have a race with with you too so i'd never been on a motorbike in my life <laughs> so i said i said to him i said uh, ed and i put our heads together we said we'll go around on push bikes or what about we'll have a donkey race so uh, the promoter said no 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 he said we want to do the real thing we want to have you can you get a couple of mates of yours as well a couple of singers and we'll have four riders for the race and get down at six o'clock for practice so we get down at six o'clock and uh some of the riders lend us their leathers as they were in those days kevlar's now of course mm -hmm. um, and um and crash helmets and bikes and bikes and they, they so anyway the uh one of the riders has said to us i think it's ovi funden i was a world champion rider in fact the meeting was uh great britain versus the rest of the world and this mm -hmm. we, our race was at the end of the night so he said the most the dangerous part is when you start at the starting tapes so he said because the bike can rear up and you know just land on you mm -hmm. he said so what we'll do is we'll have a we'll push you off and we'll have a running rolling start so i thought great so i was actually recording this for a bbc program called late night extra i had a little tape recorder strapped to me and i was actually doing a commentary on the race so i thought i'm going to go out last I don't want to be a hero here. I, I want to live because I know how dangerous it was. And so I'll go out last and uh, I'll just try and keep up with the others, but I don't want anybody you know, running running over me. So anyway, as I made my way to the tapes, I realized that there'd been a change of plans and I was going fairly full tilt towards the tapes and the others were standing at the tapes because I was coming out last. I thought, oh my God. Anyway, luckily they marshaled up the tapes went and the worst thing that could possibly happen was that I was in front. Um, anyway, it didn't last long. One of them fell off and went into the fence and somebody, uh, it was the slowest race 
ever, but I loved it. And then a few years later, Reg Fearman said to me, would you like, uh, he said, I remember you doing the Speedway at Wembley. Would you like to do Reading Speedway? So uh, I said, yeah, I'd love to. And he said, what I'd like you to do, he said, bring a, um, bring a, a, a friend down every week, maybe a, a well-known actress or a model or, you know, bring a, a glamorous girl down. So I did that every week. And um, Anders Michinek, who was the top rider at the time, um, he would always give them a ride on his bike at the end of the night. Anders was very handsome, as, as Tony will, will remember, very handsome man. And yeah. so the girls loved it. And Anders loved it because he had all these glamorous uh, women on his bike. And it was a great season because Reading won the league. Uh, and so everybody yeah. was... But it was the last season at the old stadium at Tylerhurst. And I loved that stadium. Yeah. It was packed to the rafters every week. The atmosphere was absolutely fantastic. And um, I don't think... Well, it went somewhere else. Uh, Smallmead, wasn't it? I think it went to... Yeah. Was it exactly. Uh, by the A33, by the Medeski. Yeah. Yes, yeah, that's right. Yeah. And I did it for a while there. But for me, it had lost some of the magic that it had uh, at uh, Tilehurst, which, of course, will now be a, um, a housing estate, won't it? Sad. Love Speedway <laughs> Definitely. Yeah. But I love Speedway. When I, yeah. when I was a boy, I loved football in the winter and Speedway in the summer. Right. Excellent. No, but uh, you, when I, I remember when you came uh, to to an O in Reading, and uh, I obviously knew you from earlier days, but this was serious business in the sense that I was running that radio station, and there was an opportunity at the time to get you from Radio Two, and that was a successful negotiation, and I was delighted. But I remember saying to you at that time, because your your broadcast, uh, you know, I said to you. How have you survived so long in this cutthroat business in radio and TV? And you said to me, um, well, I always turn up. And I laughed. And you said, <laughs> no, I'm absolutely serious. And it's a very good point because you said, I've seen so many shooting stars over the years who've just disappeared off the face of the earth. And I, I never let people down. And you worked with me for a couple of years at Two two one zero, very very successfully, and no, you never let anybody down. But you also helped an awful lot of young presenters there to understand the business that they were in, and it was a great partnership. And as a result, it was your first time in commercial radio, but it gave you a chance to get to know that industry, and you went to work with Capital after that, didn't you? I never missed a show at 210. I was there for two years and I was never off, even uh, in the storm. There was the great storm, if you remember. And I was living yeah. in Barnes in southwest London, so I had quite a long way to travel every day. When I got up that particular morning, um, I remember that the trees were right across my road. But luckily, I lived <laughs> opposite a common, so I went off road. <laughs> and that's, how I got, that's how I got down to Reading and kept my record intact. You kept your record in. So you certainly did that, mate. And but that that's a serious point you were making, albeit that it made me laugh at the time, but you know, never letting people down. And you will have seen, I don't know, people like Simon D come and go and you know they just disappear off, don't they? Well, Simon D, of course, uh was due to come to 210 sometime before me. And uh, the story was, uh, in fact, I put this in my 
in my book, The Golden Days of Radio One, if I can give that a little plug. Um, yeah. Yeah, the story, the story was that um, uh, they booked him. There's been quite a lot of publicity that he was joining Radio 210 in Reading. And uh, on the day of the first broadcast, they rang him up. And they said, oh, uh, Simon, uh, or the day before, they said, Simon, uh, your guest tomorrow will be Alvin Stardust. So Simon said, uh, I don't think you understand. I always choose my own guests. So they said, well, that's fine. You know, we'll sit down tomorrow and then we'll discuss all the people you want. Uh, but we had to get somebody for tomorrow and we've got Alvin Stardust. And Simon D said to them, well, you may have your Mr. Starbright, but you won't be having me. <laughs> that was a, it wasn't during my era because I wouldn't have been looking no. for Simon D to work there for sure. No, but it was no, before I'm... you. Before oh yeah, no, yeah. absolutely would have been. I wouldn't have sanctioned that. Uh, but no, those were interesting days. But I, I think that was a brave decision for you to come from national radio to a single station, albeit that we did a weekend program that went round the industry. But yeah. you know, that was a big decision for you, wasn't it? Well, you were a very persuasive man. <laughs> I think you took me out to lunch and got me drunk, I think, if I remember, something like that. <laughs> it's the equivalent of the, the King Shilling type thing. <laughs> the King Shilling. Yeah, no, you were. One of the things that I liked was Radio 2 was going through a bad, very bad patch. And uh, the music had become dreadfully old-fashioned. You know, it was um, Max Bygraves and Foster and Allen and Mantovani. Um, yeah. And uh, you said to me, you can play the music of the day. You can play uh, all the pop music that everybody wants to hear. And uh, I, that, that meant a lot to me. And in fact, you'll remember the television commercials that we, uh, yeah. we shot where I said, uh, yes, I'm joining Radio 210. Uh, more Madonna, less Mantovani. If you know <laughs> <laughs> you were digging Radio 2. And I remember the day that you actually signed and you told them you were going and it was all we put it all together your PR people and we were all on that hotel right next door to yeah. the BBC and yeah. you came straight from talking to the controller straight up to the press conference to announce it to everybody and it it was a big thing and it got an awful lot of publicity and the commercial radio industry liked it as well because we were sending out free that weekend program that you did that was networked and we got a sponsor for it so well, was, Mark, uh, Mark Simpson, who worked with me at 210, um, I used to call him the Riddler because he did uh, questions, pop questions on my program every day. He's now a producer at Radio 2. And he told me quite recently that 210 at that time had the highest listening figures that any commercial radio station had ever had. You'll probably remember what they were. Yeah. Well, the fact is, it was already successful before we got the bigger license with Basingstoke and Andover, but it was a massive signal, uh, you know, the 102.9 signal that went, well, it went, actually went to France. It was so powerful. <laughs> but, and I knew how far it went. And I knew if we put you on there and launched the, relaunched the station that way, it, so an, a very successful station, we double the revenue and we double the audience. So I think it's fair to say Whatever fees we were paying you, Mr. Hamilton, were well invested. And, and, you know, it was a great time for the station, as I said. And I do remember 
the time you used to give to younger people to encourage them. And that was a that was a very big thing for me as the managing director to see happen. So always thank you for that. It's you like know, it's Mark Simpson, Mark Simpson was a good example of that. And uh, I yes. could see the potential in young Mark uh, and the fact that uh, he's now at, uh, at uh, Radio 2, uh, which is obviously the biggest national pop station, <clears throat> uh, goes to show. And there were other people there, too. Keith Butler was another DJ who was there. Yeah. Um, and we became Keith and I became very, very good friends. In fact, um, we played football for you in the in the two one yep. football team, and uh, Keith was was not that keen on football, uh, but he had the, a picture of the lineup, and underneath he wrote, "I'm a substitute for another guy." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he was a good lad. He's no longer around, unfortunately, poor Keith. No, I went to I had to I had to speak at his funeral, and uh, <clears throat> he died very young, uh, even before his mother, and uh, his mother and his uh, sister and his two little girls were in the front row, and I've never known uh, such a sad occasion. So much sobbing was going on, and I thought, yeah. oh my God, I, I, I'm I'm going to go off here to to the sound of my own feet. I've got to do something to lift the thing. So at the end of it, I said, um, you know, I said, Keith loved his family loved loved his mother and his sister and his little girls but the other thing that he loved was a round of applause and i said i think if we all stand up now and applaud the wonderful life of keith butler so they all go up and applauded and it it kind of lightened everything up lifted a everything yeah. up yeah. yeah good good idea now david you're still working in radio yes tell us about that now what, what you're up to now well, i'm holding this up you're you're listening yeah. to see it but uh it's uh this is i'm actually in my studio at home uh but i'm doing a daily show for a station called boom radio which is aimed at the uh baby boomers and i do lunchtime 12 till 2 and it launched on valentine's day this year and um it had been after a dreadful year you know i'd had everything cancelled last year um, I couldn't get into radio studios. I was supposed to be doing uh, pointless celebrities, which is very apt, I suppose. Um, and um, <laughs> the day the day before, uh, it was my appearance was cancelled because they couldn't get health insurance for me. So uh, it's just awful. And then out of the blue, I got a call from a radio man called David Lloyd, who I'd worked with before, who said, "Look, we're opening this new station. Would you like to be part of it?" He said everybody's broadcasting from home so i said well i i don't have a studio so he said well we'll we'll build you one he said we'll give you a mic and some headphones all the music will be on computer and um he said we'll go from there so uh it's just done really well i mean it's well, it's indeed. taking listeners from radio too who uh, are ignoring the older audience and so it's the over 50s mm -hmm. and 60s and dare I say it, seventies and even eighties. But we're we're getting now, and we're very very happy to have them. Yeah, Roger Day's on there as well, isn't he? You know Roger? Yeah. Well, he was the breakfast show presenter when we launched Piccadilly Radio in Manchester, and that was my oh, first yes. job in commercial radio with Philip Birch there. Yes. And so I know Roger very well. Yeah. Yes. Fellow United Manchester United supporter as well. Is he? Oh well, he's in Spain now. He does his programs. I know. Spain. And I've I've coined a new phrase for him to get people to listen to his program. I say, just remember, a Roger a day keeps the doctor away. <laughs> <laughs> 
BBC take you off air for that. Yeah, 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 yeah. you'd be cancelled by by the BBC for that one. <laughs> well, nowadays you get cancelled for anything, don't you? Yeah. I won't get cancelled by your your listeners, will I? No, no, no. We'll, we'll get cancelled long before you do, David. <laughs> oh, that's, that's right. Let's but, be, but a, bit, just, just let's be a bit outrageous. Yeah, but thank you very much for joining us. I really do appreciate as a as a friend over many years yes. but <laughs> sharing your experiences football club radio one radio two and all of that with us tonight and hopefully if fulham are successful this season you'll come back and tell us all about the celebrations there if they get back to the premier league i have to say it's looking very good at the moment uh, we've got a big game coming up very shortly where we play bournemouth and of course scott parker uh manager from last season is there so that'll be there'll be a bit of needle that night i think but um, at the moment, it's looking very good. Mitrovic is absolutely on fire. I've never known anybody score so many goals. I mean, as you know, if you score a goal a game, that's phenomenal. But he's scored about 10 more goals than he's played games. It's just terrific. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and again, he's not somebody you would argue with, is he? He's a big boy, isn't he? Yeah. He's a big boy. <laughs> Tough lad. He's, he's he very serious. Me. He reminds me of the sort of fullback that I always played against when I was playing on the wing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Okay, well, David, thank you very much for sparing the time with us. This goes out on a Thursday night on Spotify and other uh, platforms, and we'll obviously send you the link. And if you want to send it on to other people to reminisce, that will be absolutely wonderful. But really, I, thanks for, for joining us. I'll get it put on my Facebook. I'll put it on there, on Hamilton's Hot Good. Shots. Brilliant. Thanks, David. And I know as we're recording at the moment on, on Wednesday, Fulham have just kicked off against Derby. So we'll let you go and, uh, and, and keep abreast of that. And hopefully Fulham can uh, keep, up, keep up the winning ways. I hope so. I think Derby may be more of a handful than people realise. So I'll go and watch now. Lovely talking to you, boys. And, uh, Cheers, David. Keep See going. You later, mate. Keep Cheers, pal. Thanks, David. Bye. Take care. Bye. Brilliant. Now, how about that? Absolutely okay. phenomenal, Tony. Brilliant to get someone with such great recollections of fantastic stories and the energy and passion for both presenting and entertaining that someone like David has. It's just absolutely wonderful. I mean, I, I told you about him in advance, but, you know, I don't think I exaggerated a single thing. He's very, very, and a very, very likable guy. Absolutely. Yeah. Brilliant. And and I mean, at the risk of sort of giving away ages here, I mean, as I was looking through, as we were researching this episode and looking through David's sort of career, I was looking, they were the TV shows that I grew up on, a number of them with, with him in. So absolutely brilliant to, uh, to actually meet him. I say in the flesh, but, but through the, yeah. uh, through the podcast, absolutely fantastic. Good stuff. Enjoyed it. So, um, how do you follow a guest like that is what we always say. Well, to really pick up on some of the hot topics and major conversation points, we're bringing back in our regular football correspondent. Uh, so, Billy Carr, how are you doing? I'm very well. Billy thank Carr's you. back in the house. How are you doing? <laughs> I am indeed. I am well. I am well. How are you guys? Yeah, oh. we're, we're going we're going well, but so much has happened. Oh god, we're only yeah. a third in, third way into the season, you know, 12, 13 games, whatever. Um, and so much has happened since we were last speaking. 
that's it. That's, what, that's what, it. Are the, what are the headlines <laughs> for you, Billy? Oh, God, where to start? Um, managers, yeah. uh, anyone want to stick around for the rest for the whole season, or is it just a all off, like flies, all off aren't they? thing? Yeah, no, it's insane, isn't it? Um, it's, it's so strange because, like, you're looking at it like obviously there are teams in trouble and that like that makes sense that happens every year but there's even teams that I'm questioning like why are you what's your thinking kind of thing um so yeah wow great crazy starts of the season and I said I said it had been like the most exciting start to a season that we've had and it sort of still is um, and I think that's just almost adding to the drama isn't it so, which have been the managerial changes that have sort of surprised you, then, mate? I mean, obviously, the sort of there's one or two we, we were predicting right from the start of the season with the uh, the sack race that we had going, the null and void sack race. But uh, who, who were the ones that have shocked you? Well, there was a big one this week, and although it's sort of not surprising, it sort of is as well because they were. It was obvious they were they were wanted to back him, our friend Ollie. And um, I guess one of them, like I was watching the game at the weekend. Um, well, not watching it, just listening to listening to the updates come through. And I was like, he's going to have to, it's, this is it, isn't it? Like they, they, he can't survive this. But at the same time, in the back of my mind, I'm like, no, but they've made, they, they've clearly made this decision that they want to back him. So yeah, it was one of them that I, I, I was, it was one of them that it was almost, I'm so excited. It was an the expectation was there, but I was still shocked when it came. I guess so. well, it's a big happening, isn't it? But on the other yeah. hand, it's been coming for quite a while. As a United fan, it's been coming for quite a while, and you know that Watford game, albeit that I was listening on the radio and seeing the updates when I saw it afterwards. Highlights doesn't do it justice. Mm-hmm. Lowlights would be a much better description, mm-hmm. um, but. It was tactically inept, you know, mm. and they were pathetic. And Watford aren't a good team, let's face it. Mm. Um, and when you see something like that, my view was, well, he has to go. Yeah. He has to go. It's just a case of, of when. Uh, and I mentioned earlier in this episode tonight when we we're talking about, Andy and I were talking about it, that it upset me quite a lot. Not the happening, because Ollie's a really nice guy, but it had to happen mm-hmm. but uh, the thing that upsets me always with footballers and you know there are quite a lot of numbskulls amongst them the reality is you know I was I was thought I hope nobody says this nobody says because they won in Europe last night we did that for Ollie that's <laughs> one for Ollie because that makes me puke that kind of discussion yeah. because what about the fans that have been suffering for this last nine months all the things they've been through in all those performances including Watford at weekend mm. how dare you say that one was for Ollie the not same only, coach staff put that together well not only that why, why couldn't you do that while he was there why couldn't you what? play for him then that was, that was <laughs> exactly my question yeah <laughs> so there you go. You know, crazy situation but let's not go too hung up about that yeah but what about Newcastle the only team that hires a manager and then He's in a hospital bed almost by the time the first game comes round. Does <laughs> could you think of a scenario that sums up Newcastle any more than that? You could like, not write well, it. Could I, you? You know, I, I totally agreed on this one. It was just like you could not make it up, you know. But the, uh, the chaotic they, energy they that comes point. out of that club is 
yeah, the, the, incredible. The, the, they get a point and they go to the bottom of the table. It just, it, yeah, amazing. If there so, was, a, if there was a tune that captured the first <laughs> four months of Newcastle's season, it would be the Benny Hill theme tune. You know, it's just, just yeah. players <laughs> running around. Just thinking to myself, they're almost like they're almost a naughty toddler of a of a football club, aren't they? It's like you never know what's going to come out of their mouth next. You just. <laughs> they, 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 they're, they're very entertaining in their own way and that's before they get on the pitch but anyway yeah I will say that, that the, the way the way their first game not un, well under Eddie Howe but obviously not being there the way their first game went felt a bit like uh, a return to the Kevin Keegan ways in the 90s very much like yeah. uh, we're going to just try and score as many as we can and whatever happens well, at the other than, end happens. more than the opposition yeah. <laughs> yeah now listen the reality is for the Premier League City, Chelsea, Liverpool, they're so far ahead of the rest, aren't they? It does look that way, doesn't it? I mean, West Ham are hanging in there uh, as well. Um, but my, my worry for them is just that the they've, I feel like they've got a brilliant sort of 13, 14 players and then they're still in every cup competition, I believe, as well, that yeah. they've entered. So for that squad to sustain that, level of competition is I think going to be slightly too much but yeah the other than that the other three are all away in the distance it seems yeah and agree, it does, agree if, you watch, if you watch them on the pitch it seems that way as well to be fair it does it does indeed and and your dark horses Leicester uh, are in absolute darkness yeah free fallen <laughs> I mean I, I think it was them and Aston Villa I tipped and they've both gone horrifically yeah. since the sort of start of the season having started okay um I don't know if if Brendan Rodgers is is sort of in the back of his mind thinking about the United job and has taken well, his he's, eye off he's actually spoken to his team about it which I I think is a bit strange I do think it's distracting right. if that's the case it's definitely distracting him um so I wonder if that's got something to do with it um, I, mean, I know they've had a few injuries that? as well it's just a strange thing isn't it I, I don't don't understand it at all I, you just wouldn't acknowledge it even if you were thinking it would you like you want no. you want that as a to keep your team stuck together and whatnot um so yeah they've really lost their way and um um I, I did they've had a few injuries as well but nothing like catastrophic um no. it's a shame to see but like yeah they, um they they don't look like they've got a win in them at the minute no and your your mate look okay that's Turned out to be quite a serious injury, hasn't it? No, yeah, it's kept him shame out for a while. He was looking good before then. He was one of those things about predictions, isn't it? You can't allow for things like uh, injuries, suspensions, and whatnot. Um, and yeah, shame for them. But well, shame for him, not a shame for Chelsea. They seem to be doing no. absolutely brilliantly without him. They just get the wing backs to score all the goals. Um, <laughs> seems a good solution to me. <laughs> Especially as they're English, so if we can, if uh, if Gareth wants to build a team around Chilwell and uh, James getting forward, yeah. I think we'll, we'll be doing all right. Well, well, mentioning England, Billy. Since we caught up with you on the show last, we've obviously had the the sort of the final round of World Cup qualifiers, and we now know which teams are on the plane to Qatar and which teams like Scotland are boogieing their way into the uh, playoffs. Um, any. Any anyone's that shocked you there or? Oh uh, well, the the Portugal Serbia game was a big. I don't want to say highlight because that's unfair to Portugal, but it um, 
like what a what an end like that for Serbia that would be a bit like when we beat Greece in the last minute with Beckham's uh, free kick but they were the underdog so and I know how I reacted when Beckham scored that free kick so I can only imagine how they were reacting <laughs> in Serbia that must have been <laughs> must have been epic um, so yeah that was a bit of a shocker um, and also Italy. Um, not quite getting over the line in their qualification group. Yeah. I mean, obviously the Euros winners, and I actually heard a stat on them today. They haven't played a World Cup, um, like a at the actual World Cup. They haven't played a game since they won the final in 2006. So... Were they not there in 2010? Apparently not. That's what I heard today. Um, might be wrong, but that's what someone said. Um, which, but So yeah, apparently really good in the Euros. Um, but not so good in World Cup. Yeah, I'm. World Cup. Is probably I, I'm astounded by that. That's I, I, uh, yeah. I haven't checked it, um, but it's what I heard. So oh. there you go. But yeah, you'll well, be getting us accused of false news here, <laughs> Billy. If it's... Yeah, I hope, I hope it's not wrong, but that's what I heard. <laughs> and um, and yeah, and obviously, like this qualification period, obviously, like straddled the Euros, which mm. they won. Yeah. So yeah. really strange. Really strange. So Scotland and Wales in the playoffs. Mm-hmm. So it just, yeah, I mean, I found it quite difficult to follow it all, you know, in terms of who's doing what to whom, when, what that relates to and so on. And keep checking back and say, oh, that's World Cup. Mm. Oh, okay. So I'm also, I'm also lost. Yeah, I'm also lost by the qualification um, thing. Yeah. The, the last, like there's semis and finals now. Like that's new. Yeah. Didn't know that was a thing until like a week ago when someone brought it up. But, <laughs> like, but they're over one leg. So whereas the yeah. playoff used to be a yes. two-legged affair and yeah. whoever won that was through, they're saying right and now it's Wales a... and Scotland are at home. Mm. Wales and Scotland at home in, in that semi-final. Nice. Nice to have it. But when you look at who's in that... Um, Someone, I saw someone call it the qualification group of death the other day. That's quite apt when you look at a lot of the teams that are in there. I mean, yeah, you've got um, what, yeah. Portugal, Italy, uh, yeah, Netherlands. Are they... Sweden are in there as well. We're very solid. Russia's a pretty good team. Um, Poland, everyone's favourite dark horse. They're in there as well. Um, like, yeah, tough, tough to come, to come through. I think Turkey are in there now. And they were a, a lot of people's dark horse for the Euros. Um, although that didn't go so well, but they're still a very good team. So, yeah, if you're not there yet, I think don't start counting the chickens for sure. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, in terms of this next period, before we get you back on again and do an update, uh, do you think it's just going to continue the same way with the Premier League, with the top three? And if you were being pushed today, who do you think of those three? Um, yep, can see more of the same happening, although I can't quite see how there'll be another, is it six managers replaced? <laughs> They're just going to run out of teams <laughs> to, to change. <laughs> Unless some of the ones that have just changed it go and go on and change it again. So you never know. Not unheard of. Not unheard of at all. Um, but yeah, I do see those, those three teams pulling away still. Um, I know that um, I have tipped Man City up until now. And I am slowly leaning towards Chelsea um, mm. now. They just look super, super strong. And Romelu's back in the next week or so, I think it is. 
Um, so, so adding him into a team that's already flying is uh, quite a dangerous sounding thing. Um, and I just think their manager's fantastic. I just, tactically, he is brilliant. And I know that he maybe got outmaneuvered by Pep when they played earlier on in the season. Um, but I wonder what would happen now because I think he's really worked out his system and he knows he knows where that team's going. I, I've got I was speaking to my uh, uh, my cousin the other night who, who is a Chelsea fan and and I said it would take the planets to align, but there's that squad is capable of like winning multiple trophies this year. And obviously you ride your luck, and um, you know so much has to go your way for that to happen. Anyone can lose a game on any given day. Um, but I think that squad is that's got a lot about it for me. I mean, that's why you'd yep. see them, you know, league definitely. I'd agree with you there, as you say, with, with you know, Champions League, FA mm. Cup, all those. When you get into that one off yeah. game, as, as you say, you know, anything can happen. Yeah. I mean, who, who'd have thought, you know, a couple of years ago, Liverpool would have come back from. 3-0 down against Barcelona but mm. yeah you know those sort of magic nights mad nights happen the other, the other thing that's not in Chelsea's favour is not many people defend the Champions League as well um, so yeah, that is very true that's so very you know um, but I just yeah that that squad looks in such a good place um, I mean Liverpool and Man City don't get me wrong they also look fantastic um, and I I don't see between the three of them I don't see them dropping like outside of the games when they play each other, I don't see them dropping a, a ton of points against anyone else. Um, no. So it, it's going to be a close run thing, I reckon. But just on the current state of play, I think Chelsea look awesome. And then down at the other end, going back, your bottom three were, was it Newcastle, Watford and Norwich? Yeah, Norwich. I, took, I took, I said the two, uh, the two, Promoted teams that weren't Brentford and Newcastle. So, tick, big tick for that one. <laughs> so, so far, anyway. You've got that end of the table pretty much oh, yeah. spot on. Yeah. I mean, I can't see where Newcastle's first win is actually going to come from unless Eddie, you know, has some magic powers that come from recovering from COVID. Right. COVID bed. Yeah. To, uh, but that is, it's a big job that whoever you are. And, I think uh, the, the whoever's in charge of uh, transfers in January will have a big say on whether Newcastle stay up or not. Um, it's going to be a massive yeah. challenge for them to bring anyone in because you know if you're a player looking at a team that hasn't won, uh, like if they if they still haven't won a game at that point, do you want to go there and? potentially six months later be playing championship football, albeit on massive wages, I assume. Um, well, yeah. No, I, big, I, big, I, I'd imagine yeah. you'd, you'd have a, a clause written yeah, in, wouldn't you, an escape true. clause? Although there was talk, I forget which paper it was, I was reading um, on, on the Sun Lounger last week, just to rub <laughs> it in. Um, yeah, nice. <laughs> and they were talking about the fact that there are so many clubs worried about Newcastle almost becoming like PSG, you know, where they're... Mm. That they're not even worried about Mbappe leaving on a free this this summer. You know, they signed him for what a hundred and plus million yeah. quid a couple of years ago, and they're just saying, "Yeah, that's peanuts." Oh, well. we'll, we'll get another let, one. Yeah, we'll get another one. <laughs> and there are so many clubs worried about Newcastle almost having that same spending power that there's almost talk that clubs will kind of close ranks and mm. refuse to sell them anyone. 
So that could also be a challenge for them in January, not only mm. trying to entice decent players who will maybe not want, you could keep them up, but not want to go there with the threat of not staying up. Mm. But also will other clubs look at it and say, well, you know what, when, why would we sell to you when, you know, we're all jealous of the the money that you've mm-hmm. got now, um, you know, the sort of the, the Saudi billions. So actually, no, we're not selling. Recruitment's going to be yeah. massive for them, isn't it? Um, and that, that probably will decide if they do make it or not. And, and not, well, I say it will decide if they make it or not. They can get in as many players as they want. If the form doesn't change, they'll still go down. Um, but I think that that's sort of the only thing I see, um, sort of the only way out I see for them is is if they can get that get that recruitment spot on. I don't think it will take like it's not going to take like a whole squad um, to to change it for them because they have got some good players in there. But they need yeah. they need I'd say three or four really solid players that are going to turn that ship around mm. and turn it around fast. But it, it, you know, it's a bad habit losing and they're, they're mm. pretty good at that so far this season. So, yeah, well, lovely to see you again. Lovely to hear from you. And we'll obviously get the updates as uh, as we go along and see how many of those predictions come right. But I think at the top end, that's pretty pretty obvious. It's just a case of how it falls. So you're erring towards Chelsea. We will see. Lovely <laughs> to see you, mate. Yeah, you too, guys. Thanks a lot. Always lovely to speak Cheers, to you. Well. Thanks you for joining us, Billy. And I'll I'll, uh, I'll I'll catch up with you at the weekend at the Stoop for a uh, another local derby. Indeed, uh, indeed. Queens for Irish. Yeah, I look forward to it. See you soon, guys. Cheers, then. Bye. Bye, Billy. Excellent. Well, again, on Null and Void, aren't we lucky? Two great guests, David Hamilton, uh, with his stories from the broadcast industry and, of course, massive Fulham supporter who may well get to the Premier League next season. We don't know. We'll see. They tend to oscillate between the two. And obviously, um, uh, Billy, with his predictions going forward, as ever, interesting insights. And we'll see how we progress with that. But one thing for sure, there's never a dull moment when you ask somebody to come back and tell us how you think the Premier is going. And Billy's expert at that. Yeah, I mean... The one thing we should have got him to predict where we were talking about it is who we think the next manager to go will be because you just can't, you you can't absolutely, you wouldn't want to put put money on any of them staying in position yeah. for too long. You know, it's just, oh, it's been wouldn't. crazy. Yeah, absolutely right. Now, two, obviously two great guests. And as ever at this point, we're saying, if you want to get in touch with us, anything they've said, the guests that, that interests you, comments you want to make, the details are there for you at the end of this podcast and we look forward to being with you clearly at a time and a place next week that suits you but make sure you're there and tell everybody else about null and void we love that look forward to catching up with you all soon folks uh take care and see you next week see you later bye thanks a lot bye null and void with tony grundy and andy callahan together they don't add up to much if you have a sports story, you can contact the team on n and v at forthenow.co.uk.